Welcome to our podcast, Oncology Morning Commute, the emerging role for antibody drug conjugates in GI cancers. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals and Daiichi Sanko Incorporated. In this episode, Dr. John Marshall and Dr. Howard Hoxter discuss GI cancers and antibody drug conjugates. How are these new therapies changing the landscape of GI care? Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash solid tumor six. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Marshall is a professor and chief of hematology oncology at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Dr. Huckster is a distinguished professor of medicine and associate cancer center director of Rutgers Cancer Center in New Brunswick, New Jersey. I am Candace Hoffman, managing editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Huckster will begin our discussion. Uh, to our listeners, thanks for joining. I'm uh, Howard Huckster from the Rutgers Cancer Institute, and I'm here today with uh, John Marshall, uh, one of my good colleagues in GI cancer and someone I always enjoy uh, speaking with. Uh, and we were continuing our podcast on the ro- merging role of ADCs in GI cancer. Uh, welcome, John. Howard, thanks very much. And thanks for uh, uh, working together on this. Uh, who knows, pretty soon we'll be uh, podcast famous. You never know. Could be, could be. Um, but I'll, I'll always say I knew you when. <laughs> so um, I, I think we had a little discussion earlier. If you missed our first podcast, we talked uh, about the role for HER2 testing in GI cancers, and uh, it's not as frequent as uh, we see in breast cancer, but we still need to test for these. And we've got some good therapeutics now. Uh, so one of the main areas that we are interested in now is the evolving role of antibody drug conjugates, which will take an antibody targeting HER2 and attach a um, payload to it, kind of a Trojan horse approach. Uh, It's got, as John pointed out earlier, the advantage of turning off the cell growth pathway by the antibody and then delivering some kind of um, cellular toxin. Uh, to the cell that has the overexpression. Uh, We're going to dive a little bit deeper into the therapeutic options and the data behind uh, the approach to um, HER2 overexpressing GI cancer. Yeah, I was thinking, Howard, you know, we can't emphasize enough the importance of testing, that if you don't do this, you'll never know about it. Um, These are active therapeutic options for these patients there are enough of them out there that you really have to test uh, for every patient. There are blood testing, tissue tests that are available uh, for this. And now you've got not only frontline therapies, but also subsequent line therapies. And this is going to, I think, in the end, translate to maybe one day adjuvant, although for right now we don't have that indication. Uh, but anyway, you've got to go here. I know there's a lot of immune therapy fever. Um, so we've yes. gotten a pretty high awareness of, of PDL1 testing, but HER2 is equally important, maybe more important than PDL1 testing, a more powerful predictor uh, for uh, therapeutic benefit. Right. So um, 
couldn't agree more. Uh, we need to test and uh, look for these targets. So I think the first trial that really showed the benefit of, of HER2-directed therapy was the TOGA trial for gastric and GE junction adenocarcinoma. I think the whole stomach, esophagus, GE junction area, especially with the immunotherapy trials, have gotten kind of um, all conglomerated. So we have some trials that have squamous adenos, esophageal adeno, esophageal squamous, GE junction, gastric all in one trial. But I personally still feel the need to separate these uh, to a certain extent. And for her too, we're really looking at adenos of the stomach and the GE junction, not so much the uh, distal esophagus. But the TOGA trial um, showed that if we add uh, trastuzumab to chemotherapy, uh, we do improve disease-free survival and overall survival. And that's become a standard first line for her to overexpressing gastric cancer. So we test um, all our new uh, gastric cancers today with immunohistochemical testing, kind of as a reflex testing. Yeah, I was thinking back to, I mean, I had hair when that study was done. Um, and <laughs> You know, in, <laughs> and, you know, it's really taken a long time for there to be significant progress. And it's not without trying, right? We had studies of combinations. We had adjuvant studies. We had um, second line studies. So we were continuing to borrow successes from the breast cancer world and try to apply it to this gastroesophageal world. Um, and we really failed to move the bar. And it's always caused me to scratch my head as to why there wasn't the carryover, why we weren't seeing the same kind of benefits in our cancers compared to breast cancer. And it almost made me question the validity of HER2 in the beginning. You know, right. was the TOGA trial a, a funky outlier that it really wasn't that good of a target? So I'm reassured by the newer data that's come forward today. Yeah, the you know strategies of combining trastuzumab with pertuzumab and with TDM1 or use of TDM1 after um, just did not work out that well in in gastric cancer as as breast cancer. And you know, I, I don't know the the answers to that. Maybe it's bypass signaling or collateral pathways, and maybe it's just the patient populations that we're doing these studies on. I mean, it's rare enough that most of these studies become worldwide studies and maybe there's heterogeneity in the patient populations. I don't know. I mean, we have improved testing, that's for sure. Our testing techniques and standard of care there has, has improved. And I, I like to come back to your opening point about that these are different cancers, is that, you know, are we lumpers or splitters? It's squames, it's adenos junction and stomachs and even stomachs come in two flavors, the sort of diffuse and intestinal kinds. And yeah. then we start looking at Asian populations versus Western populations. We see differences in outcome there. And so, you know, we're making some assumptions how these translate or are the same when in fact they probably are clinically distinct. And because they're not all that common in our, you know, populations, we have to make decisions about, you know, lumping patients into clinical trials. We're seeing it with immune therapy now where we lump them and then after the fact, split them back out to see if there were groups that 
benefited more than others. And I think uh, that may also have been true with some of the, the bumps that we've had with HER2 targeting over the last decade or more. Uh, yes. Um, so, you know, one of the newer drugs, which I'm pretty excited about, is an antibody um, drug conjugate that's uh, trastuzumab um, attached to a topoisomerase 1 inhibitor, um, dexrotecan. And, you know, that's the drug that was in the Destiny gastric trial. Uh, so, those drugs do have a certain kind of toxicity we need to look for, which includes uh, corneal ulcerations and interstitial lung disease, but the response rates and the survival benefit was really impressive. You know, it was um, published in New England Journal, and it showed that the, in a two-to-one randomized study of 125 patients, the hazard ratio for survival was 0.6, with a median of 12.5 versus 8.4 months, so a 50% improvement in survival in the um, gastric uh, trial with the trastuzumab dextrotecan. So I, I think that that's really uh, you know, one of the better targeted therapies we've seen around. Yeah, no question. And if you put that in the fact that this was in third line in the clinical trial, even though there's some wiggle room about lines of therapy with our FDA approval, um, you know, really impressive response rates, but in the 50% range um, for the um, trastuzumab desrexatecan arm, comparing it to chemotherapy on the other side, um, which performed its typical, say, 10% response rate. So big deltas in response, as you say, overall survival deltas that were impressive and meaningful um, to, to our patients. And very quickly on on the backs of relatively small clinical trials. I think this is also a sign of the times is that you don't need thousands of patients uh, to define benefit when the benefit is obvious, <laughs> when you almost don't need a biostatistician to show the deltas. Um, and so, you know, smaller, highly enriched studies, two to one randomization are enough for us all to say, you know, this is worth it uh, for our patients. So. I think the Destiny Gastric 01 study is a landmark study, certainly justifies uh, approval for this patient subpopulation uh, in what is a bad cancer, right? These are, these are patients that often don't make it to second and third line uh, because of the nastiness of the disease. So uh, this is a really good option for these patients. Yeah, and I mean, that was a, such a uh, well-done study. Of course, it led to the FDA and EMEA approval in Europe and also um, into the NC, NCCN guidelines uh, last year. So, you know, trastuzumab deruxtecan is a drug that you should be able to access for um, previously treated HER2 overexpressed in gastric cancer that have had uh, trastuzumab in the past. I mean, it's it's approved and it's in the guidelines. So, um, and they continue the um, companies continue to do trials. There's a second line trial again, looking at uh, use just in second line instead of third line. Then there's a randomized trial against um, uh, what we often give second line ramucirumab and paclitaxel. So, a lot of interesting data will come out with the use of this uh, antibody drug conjugate. And, and my prediction is that it's going to keep marching forward to first line and maybe even adjuvant 
studies, uh, uh, fingers crossed that we get some benefit uh, from, from those. Now, in terms of testing, I think, you know, there, there is not a requirement to repeat testing for these patients. And it kind of comes back to the mechanism of action. They've begun to look at levels of expression of HER2. Now, to be in this study, your, your baseline test needed to be HER2 three plus or two plus ish positive to get in. Um, but because this drug is a hook, right, to bring a payload, to bring, bring a chemo payload, there have been some studies that have looked at lower levels of expression. And while not approved in those lower levels of expression, there are some observations of benefit, even when the receptor is a little uh, lower uh, on there. So what do you think about that? Do you think we're going to need to dig deeper on those uh, lower expressors and, and define those groups to see if there's any benefit worth going after? Yeah, I, I think so, John. I mean, they, they, you know, they, we don't know these things. And even in breast cancer, some of the large trials, NSABP, for example, has shown some benefit to um, trastuzumab-based therapy for people who have low or no expression. So, you know, there may be benefit um, for uh, lower expressors besides the two-plus-ish positive patients. And then, you know, of course, there's a real question how to sequence it in with um, immunotherapy. I was personally very impressed with the Keynote 811 trial. That was the trial looking at first-line therapy with um, chemotherapy, mostly K-box with trastuzumab and then Pembro or placebo. And it was uh, interestingly published in Nature, not even a, you know, a clinical journal. But the primary endpoint for that was the response rate. So the response rate was basically 75 versus 50%, uh, more or less, for the addition of the pembrolizumab, and the FDA approved it based on that. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the PFS and survival benefit also from that trial. But with um, people who have higher CPS scores, you know, five uh, and higher, I'm really much more inclined to use uh, anti-PD-1 therapy early in their treatment. And um, how to sequence that with HER2 is interesting. Um, also in the, in the 811 trial, it didn't matter what your PD-1 expression was. Yeah, no, I think that's an incredible observation. Um, you know, we all know that we've been combining PD-1 inhibitors with everything just in the off chance that it's going to uh, improve outcome. So there's almost no clinical scenario that I can think of where we haven't at least attempted, regardless of biomarker, to throw in a PD-1 drug and see if it moves the bar at all. And yeah, I know. I, there's a lot of, let's take PD-1 with another inactive drug and try to make it work in colon cancer or pancreas. But I mean, <laughs> fortunately in gastric cancer and maybe biliary cancers too, they actually work. So Yeah, I mean, but even then, you know, you get these smaller deltas uh, that, that yeah. probably are meaningful. And over the years of GI cancer, small deltas is what we've gotten used to. So we'll take it. Um, but I was, I was impressed by uh, the Keynote 811 study. And I thought, you know, it suggests there's some sort of potential mechanistic interaction here um, versus just additive benefit of IO working in this space or two working in this space. 
So I do think that study further supports the need to have HER2 testing in first-line therapy. Don't just be thinking your CPS score, uh, be thinking both. So you need to send both. Now, they're both doable with immunohistochemistry with relatively quick turnaround. So the key ones you need uh, in this space can be done locally. You don't need to partner with somebody out there in the world um, to get those results. And you can uh, have them in place for frontline therapy. So I think it's a practice changing clinical trial right on a dime. Uh, I agree. Uh, and, you know, then we shouldn't also forget there's other small molecule inhibitors. There's the studies going on with tucatinib, both in gastric and colorectal cancer that may have a role as well. So we have um, a number of options, um, uh, how to sequence drugs with HER2 overexpressing um, colon cancer and gastroesophageal cancer. So What's your approach now on HER2 in, in colon cancer? Are you testing everyone? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to. Um, you know, as you pointed out in our earlier podcast, it is the RAS wild type, BRAF wild type, left-sided patient that is also frequently HER2. And so if you're going to enrich for a better return, doesn't mean don't test everybody uh, with colorectal cancer, but it's that group that needs testing. And I tell you, uh, that's also the patient that you're tempted to give EGFR therapy to even in frontline. Um, and yet we've got evidence to say that frontline or uh, her uh, EGFR targeting in her two uh, overexpressors is not as effective. Signs of resistance may be even inactive in that group. So uh, I think her two is at, it has to be in that initial portfolio of testing of MSI, RAS, RAF, and then HER2. There's some other rarer tests, you know, the Intrex and the, and the like that could wait till later. Um, but I tend to test our colon cancer patients for everything as soon as I can. And what's nice about colon cancer is usually there is no shortage of tissue. There's often uh, liver biopsies or primaries have been resected um, where, where tissue is, is easily obtainable. But then we have to remember to track it. We have to remember to bring it forward in our HPI so that we remember uh, what uh, uh, is out there. So absolutely testing everybody uh, with colon cancer um, and, and tracking those where I haven't yet. Do you? Yeah. Unfortunately, there's no um, HER2-directed targeted therapy that's FDA-approved for colon yet. Uh, we have some single-arm studies like the MyPathway study for trastuzumab and pertuzumab, and therefore it's in the NCCN guidelines. So, you know, for second or later line therapy, you may be able to get those approved. But um, the key trial now is the SWOG1613 um, that um, Dr. Raghav is sharing. He's from MD Anderson, works with Scott Kopetz. They've done a lot of the work on this area, showing that it's a bad prognostic factor also. But, you know, once we get that study done uh, for second line versus chemo, hopefully that'll lead to an FDA approval. So, you know, if you have these patients and you have the trial um, open, don't forget about that. And then, of course, um, uh, the sponsors uh, for uh, the 
trastuzumab, uh, deruxtecan are doing a colon study, Destiny CRCO1, uh, that'll hopefully also have um, some pretty good data coming out that may also lead to supplemental FDA approval. But, um, you know, it's a battle to get these drugs approved today. So, you know, we need the data. Yeah, if we think about, you know, I don't know what the actual number of all comers in colorectal, I think of it as more like two to 3% at most. But when you start to enrich for this all wild type group, um, you start to see them. And so, and that's then becomes a, a patient base where we really need these therapies. And, you know, so it really falls on us to identify these patients. Um, if you have access to these studies, and the SWOG study would be a great example, cooperative group, but getting them on studies. But as you also mentioned, access to these therapies is uh, available. Uh, through um, guideline sort of approval. And so I think uh, don't feel helpless to not measure in the first place um, because there's nothing you can do because there is something you can do uh, in these patients. Well, thank you very much, John. It's, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. I think that we've outlined, uh, you know, an important aspect of, of treating GI cancer by testing for targetable pathways and especially HER2 overexpression. There are a number of different approaches to this now and the exciting new data with um, antibody drug conjugates. So we look forward to how we can combine these things uh, in the right sequence and with immunotherapy to get the best outcome for our patients. And the best way that we're going to get the right data is through clinical trials. So as always, I um, like to encourage people to contribute to that and enroll your patients. One more uh, additional comment is it's been difficult to enroll the clinical trials because of the pandemic and staffing issues uh, for, for all of us. So keep the faith. Um, uh, keep pushing. To, we, we will restore staffing to a level where we can pick back up clinical research around the country. Uh, so fingers crossed that we'll have that brighter day soon. Thank you for joining us today. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash solid tumors six. Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services.